0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. I've got the brilliant journalist and author Ed Caesar on the podcast. That is a name for someone writing a history book, isn't it? Ed Caesar. He came, he saw, and he conquered this particular publishing project. He joins me on the podcast to talk about the almost forgotten story of Britain's most mysterious mountain legend, Morris Wilson, World War I veteran an outsider who attempted to climb Everest alone. I mean, the story is completely ridiculous. He actually attempted to crash an aircraft into the lower slopes of Everest and begin his climb that way. Complete, completely remarkable. Ed Caesar has rescued this story, really, from complete obscurity. It's the subject of his new book, The Moth of the Mountain, and it was a wonderful opportunity to get this fantastic writer on the podcast to talk about an extraordinary story. Ed's a writer for The New Yorker. He's won several very prestigious awards And it's a great pleasure to have him here on the podcast. If you want to watch documentaries to go along with your audio pleasure, you can do so. We've just released the documentary In Search of My Father, which is a beautiful story of a man now in his 80th year whose father was killed eight months before he was born. I take him to a museum in the Midlands of England and unite him with with an aircraft in which his father may have flown. It's very, very special. That's all available at History Hit TV. We've also got a documentary on the centenary of the... Burial of the Unknown Soldier in Westminster Abbey. The Unknown Soldier was buried this week, 100 years ago. So lots going on in History Hit TV. Please go and check it out. If you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free and then your second month for just one pound, euro, or dollar. So if you're listening in England or you are in parts of the US, other parts of Europe where you are locked down, you can drink your fill of all the wonderful history documentaries on History Hit TV. In the meantime, everybody, here is Ed Caesar. Enjoy. (laughs) Ed, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. You've found another one of your amazing stories. Where do you find your stories?
2: I find my stories in a variety of places, but I still believe in reading the newspaper every day. There is a brilliant serendipity about the way that newspapers are organised. They're very good technology. So I've come across stuff that I wouldn't know about otherwise. I'll be reading about something else. A spark will fly off this... (laughs) and you will then find yourself thinking more about that little detail than you do about the story you've been reading. So that's, broadly speaking, how things go for me.
1: Just read papers, read books, and then all the juices start flowing. I
2: find it's very difficult to have good ideas that no one else is having if you're just reading the internet. Maybe it's because I was born in 1980, so maybe my brain hasn't been totally rewired by phones and the internet. And obviously, I I read stuff online all the time. But I find that a lot of my best... Ideas come when I'm reading an actual physical book because you're not distracted, you're more concentrating, maybe you think the answer isn't immediately linkable. <laughs> so you, you make better connections, I think.
1: Yeah, funny enough, there's a podcast we've got out at the moment about Toussaint L'Ouverture in the Haitian Rebellion and it starts, first paragraph, there's a throwaway mention to a formerly enslaved african on the slave plantations of the indian ocean and she was a princess and she led this kind of campaign against the french colonial overlords in the indian ah. o- on one of the islands in the Indian ocean i'm like hold up buddy that feels to me like it needs a book yeah exactly there's the story dude anyway so like, same thing i was reading that and it just blew my mind so having discussed where you get your stories tell us about this recent one and and is there something about being a brit everest these kind of mad attempts to take on the himalayas We've all kind of grown up with those stories, haven't we, here in the UK? Yeah,
2: I think they're quite a big part of our culture. I think George Mallory is maybe like the quintessential Englishman in a lot of ways. You know, a poet, an adventurer, someone who sort of strove for these noble ideals. And in fact, what I read about Morris Wilson, the subject of The Moth and the Mountain, when I was reading a book called Into the Silence by Wade Davis, which is an absolutely astonishingly good book if anyone is looking for a history of the early English attempts to climb Everest. And he mentions Wilson in passing as another one of these war veterans who tried his hand at climbing Everest. And that's when I first heard about it. But that would have been in 2011 when I first read about that. And so the story has lingered in my mind for a long time before I started actually doing the proper research. The thing that comes back to me about Wilson is that he's not actually a type. So most of the people who tried to climb Everest in the 20s were... Oxford or Cambridge, generally Eton, you know, Balliol, you know, that kind of direction, that was the highly born or the highly educated. And that was the type of person who was in the Royal Geographical Society or the Alpine Club. And Morris Wilson is the son of a mill owner from Bradford. So he's aspirant, middle class. He was a temporary gentleman in the First World War, which meant that he, he entered as a soldier and then was given a commission when so many subalterns were killed on the front line in the first couple of years that they needed to swell the ranks of second lieutenants and became a temporary gentleman. That's roughly where he sits class-wise. He's coming from a very different spot and the British authorities did not want him to undertake this journey and he thinks that a lot of it is to do with class. He thinks it's okay if you're the Marquis of Clydesdale, you can go and fly a plane to Everest, but if you're Morris Wilson, son of Mark Wilson, mill owner from Holmtop Mill in Bradford, you know, you're not welcome in this particular club of adventurers. He may have been misplaced on that count actually, but that's how he feels. He has a he has a huge chip on his shoulder.
1: What do we know about his wartime experience? I mean, every time I go back and look at these war veterans now, I start thinking about trauma that they've suffered, the things that their wartime experience made them do after the war. Had he had a quote unquote good war, it had it been a, a traumatic war?
2: He had an outstanding war, but it was a short one. So he first went to France at the end of nineteen seventeen. So he was joining his battalion, the 1st 5th West Yorkshire's, at just at the end of the Battle of Passchendaele, then spots in the front line with men from you know, nearby West Yorkshire battalions and didn't actually see any real action until the day on which he won his military cross, which was this astonishing day on the 25th of April in 1918, when he held his post in advance of rapidly retreating front line as machine guns took out positions to his right and his left. And out of of his battalion, 500 odd people were killed, 150 were taken prisoner. The roll call the next day, there were 72 men in the first fifth left. And, you know, it's astonishing that he survived and astonishing that he was able to do so when he was in such an exposed spot. And I don't think he ever got over how lucky he'd been. (laughs) It's a a strange thing to survive something like that. Um, He later got shot Again, in quite a lucky way, you know, he got shot across the back and the left arm just near Hellfire Corner in Ypres in July of 1918. And again, a bullet goes one way or goes an inch the other way, and you are not coming home. Instead, he just has a slightly lame left arm for the rest of his life. So I think the really instructive things that I read about the post-war experience were actually not from Wilson himself, but were from contemporaries. You know, people like J.B. Priestley, who grew up near him and fought in the West Yorkshires, wrote amazing vivid descriptions of going back to a city and to a place that they didn't understand anymore. Um, Herbert Reed, who became a brilliant critic, an art critic, who'd fought in the spring offensive. And he talks about this dark screen of horror and violation that you can't penetrate. The people who've seen action on the front line and the people who haven't. And it's not to do with, I guess, you know, you can medicalize it and say a lot of these men were suffering from PTSD, but you could also just say, that it's a normal response to seeing something horrific and experiencing something horrific that someone that most people will never see. It's a normal response to feel that alienation from normal people because how could they possibly understand? So I think you know that uh, a lot of the early Everest, Everest project in the nineteen twenties was born out of wanting something noble and pure to strive for, which that which those Mallory certainly felt that Everest was, and Wilson's comes out of a similar impulse that Everest could redeem him in some way.
1: And his plan for climbing it was rather extraordinary. Tell us what it was.
2: He was going to fly his Gypsy Moth biplane by by, in stages. So you couldn't fly all the way to Everest. So you had to fly in stages through Europe, through North Africa, Middle East, Trucial States, around Persia, and into India. Then finally he was going to get to Purnia in northern India. He was going to fly across Nepal and he was going to crash land his Gypsy Moth biplane on one of the plateaus surrounding Everest. At which point he was going to get out of his biplane and then walk to the top of the mountain. He, was, he had all his climbing equipment, his whimper tents, his oxygen, his windproof clothing. So he was going to climb alone for the final part. It's an, extra, it's an extraordinary idea. And he does actually get a huge part of the journey done. He, he flies 5,000 miles as a very inexpert and new flyer. I mean, he's got about you know 40 hours of experience in an aeroplane at this point. You know, he doubles it in the first week that he's on his journey. He is a terrible, hand-fisted flyer who just about makes it to India. But at that point, the uh, British authorities in India impound his plane. So he has to find a different way to get to the mountain. And he gets into extraordinary situation of disguising himself as a Tibetan priest to cross illegally into Tibet, and then he walks to the foot of the mountain where he starts his attempts.
1: Oh, so he goes up from the Tibetan side?
2: Yeah. He walks from Darjeeling up through Sakim, over the border into Tibet, and then the same way that the, all the expeditions of the 1920s did, they approach it from the Rongbuk Monastery Tibetan side.
0: Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: And how does it go for him?
2: Well, he has never climbed anything more challenging than a flight of stairs. He's done some training in Snowdonia. He did a bit of, um, I think he might have climbed the old man of Coniston, You know, he's done some hill walking, essentially, and he's very fit um, and he has no idea how to climb mountains. And so when Wilson attempts to do it the first time around, he's got some porters who have helped him walk the 300 miles from Darjeeling to the mountain. But he he tries to climb it on his own and he doesn't get to the old British camp three he has to turn around because he's so exhausted and he can't find his way and he doesn't have any crampons and so on. And eventually, half dead, he makes it back to Rongbuk and, and persuades a couple of his, his uh, Boutier porters to come with him again. And this time he makes it to the North Pole. without giving too much away. He does not back down from the challenge that he is unfit to meet at the North Pole. So it's the first piece of climbing that's really technical. Uh, on Everest from the north side, and he has no way to do it. But he does not back down from it.
1: And before him, had people made it to the North
2: Coal? So before him, Mallory and Irvine, some people think they actually made it to the summit of Everest. So above the North Coal, that's the old Camp 4, and then they made two more high camps, the old British expeditions on the mountain. In 1924, Irvin and Mallory were seen having a go for the very top. And there's this disputed sighting by Noel Dow, Did they make it over the second step or not? And the feeling is that if they made it over the second step, then they might have made it to Everest. In any event, Mallory and Irving did not survive. They died either on the way up or on the way down. Most likely, they didn't get to the summit, but the jury's out. But they got very, very high. And in fact, even the year before there had been an expedition in 1933, the year before Wilson tried, in which Frank Smythe got within touching distance of the summit before becoming so delirious he tried to share his biscuits with an imaginary companion and then just about making it down. So the British teams had got really, really close. And it's kind of astonishing to think of how close they got, or maybe actually did it in the 20s that it took until 1953 for it actually to be climbed.
1: Why do you think we find these stories of Everest so fascinating? Is it part of our imperial nostalgia? Like, what is it that we learn by looking at these expeditions? There's an obvious narrative
2: to a mountain. You know, you
1: either make it to, make it to the top or you don't. And that is,
2: you know, we sublimate a lot of other challenges into those experiences. You know, mountaineering was a very new idea in the 1920s and 30s. You know, it only really existed as a sport since about 1860. When people started trying to bag peaks in the Alps, Grindelwald, and all those places, it really hadn't existed for very long. And this idea was that you just had to conquer. You know, the idea was you bagged these peaks, and the, eventually there's only you know one or two left, and the big one is Everest. There was something about the British attempt on Everest. They felt that you know the world's greatest seafaring nation had been beaten to both poles by other nations, and they they viewed Everest as the third pole, and they felt that it was a matter of some kind of national pride that they not be beaten to the top of Everest. As a modern reader, I think the really interesting thing is how committed these people were to this quite abstract idea. I mean, the mountain does not care if you climb it or not. People have lived near Everest For hundreds and thousands of years and have never once thought to themselves, I must climb to the very top of that enormous mountain. This is a peculiarly British, and actually I would say a Victorian and Edwardian obsession that, you know, has become an accepted sport now. But it is quite a weird idea that in order to achieve something, you have to get to the very the very top of it.
1: I also wonder if there was a spirit for about 150 years there where the world was there to be sort of tamed and conquered and You know, from the moment we started burning coal and draining and canalising rivers, it just looked like this was one giant playground that we needed to sort of get on top of. And we're only now coming to terms of the fact that we may have destroyed a livable climate in doing that. But I I wonder if the Victorians climbing mountains was part of that drive to blast and curb and change the very earth beneath our feet. Yeah, there's
2: this subjugation element of it. I also think there, there is something that runs alongside this, which is about a more modern sense of the self, which is something that I dig into a little bit in the book, because Shackleton is really interesting on this. You know, he talks about reaching the end of his incredible series of hardships when endurance that mission goes wrong. And he talks about reaching the naked soul of men. These expeditions were always couched in sort of geographical or exploratory terms. They always had a kind of scientific drive to them. But for the people who are doing them, that wasn't why Mallory wanted to climb Everest. He wanted to reach some deep and impenetrable part of his self. And I think this idea, you know, you see people now do triathlons or they want to, you know, swim across the channel or whatever it is. This, you know, it has taken the place of religion for a lot of people, these kind of huge challenges. And you see, I mean, now maybe more people do stuff that's like this than they've ever done stuff that's like that.
1: Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And then stripping away the kind of facade of civility and fashion and all those other things, because that's when I go when I do sailing or climbing. You always people say what I love about it is you really you really get to know yourself on the mountain. And presumably, if you were a peasant farmer in fourteenth century. Staffordshire, you'd have got to know yourself every bloody day. Like you know, you didn't need yeah. an extra challenge. Whereas I suppose modernity, we're all we're we're all sort of lounging about in gentlemen's clubs or now in offices, and maybe we need to create things that teach us about ourselves. I also think just that generationally that that
2: generation after the First World War had seen such horrific things, and here was a chance to do something that was very very hard, but had a felt like a purer goal. You know, you're not massacring. Another country is young men. You you know, you're trying to reach the top of this mountain. And the the language that they talked about it, you know, this, this is the sentinel in the sky. This really was, it, it felt redemptive, I think, just particularly in the 20s and 30s.
1: Fascinating stuff. We've got a, a question here from Mark, who's one of the history hit subscribers into this call. Do you spend a lot of time trying to work out exactly where people were when this happened? Is there enjoyment here in kind of forensically putting together the details of, of, of what happened? Or is this a bigger book about mountaineering and about, and about human endurance? No, I felt,
2: well, I felt that it was really important to get this story right. I mean, I feel like about every story I do, but Wilson's been written about before, Morris Wilson's been written about before, and the more I dug into archives and found new original material, I realised that so much that had been written about him was wrong. You know, the common story about where he fought in the war, wrong. There was no way he could have been where everyone said he was. His battalion was fighting somewhere else. You look in his unit diary, there he is. Okay, so that's all wrong. And in fact, it's much more dramatic when you know the true story. Like Even up to the very last edit, I was finding things like... I realised that his altimeter was broken because he he keeps on recording heights that are not where he is on the mountain. And so I find (laughs) you find yourself changing where he is on the mountain because of that. All of that was really important... So the details instruct your wider sense of what it's all about. There were little moments, for instance, when he was in Darjeeling waiting to go in disguise to the mountain, he's walking around town with this old American woman who gives him a cross. And on one side of the cross, it says Rita. And on the other, it says Amor Vincit Omnia. Love conquers all. And the cross had been given to a guy that had gone to France and died in the First World War. And this, Morris Wilson tells this woman his story and the woman gives him this cross that had belonged to her daughter's fiancé. And he takes it and he wears it to Everest. And I, I've never seen in any, you know, this in a letter that I found in a in a box in Germany. Someone gave it to me. But those details instruct your sense of what the whole story is about. It's not a question of you know what the story is, and then it's a question of filling in the details. The details are the story. That was meaningful to him for a particular set of reasons, and it's what he's wearing when he dies. And it's, you know, it's still on him now, I think, um, because his body is still in a high place.
1: Yeah, it's, it's still there, preserved, like so many other mountaineers on Everest. Well, thank you very much. It's such an exciting book, this. What's it called?
2: It's called The Moth and the Mountain. Very exciting to have it in the world.
1: Well, congratulations! Lots of hard work, I know. The moth and the mountain, Ed Caesar. Congratulations! Good luck! Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Dan. I have one. Thanks for reaching the end of this podcast.